Boy, last week we gave you a lot to think about, huh? If you were never uh, familiar with that long ending of Mark and um, the scholarship surrounding it, I hope it gave you something to think about and pray about and cause you to strengthen your faith and to study your Bible more diligently, to search the Scriptures like the Bereans. I hope I also communicated uh, that I'm about 60-40, 60% sure that the long ending of Mark is, is spurious. But 40% of me says, maybe not. The scholarship is that kind of evenly split on it. But here's what I did want to leave you with is, no doctrine of the church is in question because of the long ending of Mark. No doctrine of the church is in question because of the long ending. God has so preserved His Word that we know what the truth is about God, ourselves, our need for a Savior. We know about the Savior. We know how to... to repent and place our faith in Jesus Christ, and we even know how the story is going to end. God has miraculously preserved His Word in that way. About the only thing maybe that one could say is, was the early apostolic community able to handle poisonous snakes and drink poison? Maybe they were. But if they were, that was the point that the apostolic community could do those signs and wonders which authenticated their authority to start the church, to lay down the doctrine of the church, to record that doctrine in Holy Scripture. And many other signs and wonders attested to that authority. Ability to heal people on the spot, the ability to cast out demons on the spot and even the ability to speak in foreign languages that they had no previous ability to speak. And so these were signs and wonders that authenticated the early apostolic community. And if it turns out in heaven we find out they were able to withstand poisonous snake bites and drink poison, it doesn't change anything about what we believe and how we practice our faith today. But we needed to go over the long ending and let you know what the scholarship says about it so that you would not um, be in a place where you might go out one day and have an unbeliever go, hey, did you know? And then you're embarrassed or you're defensive or you're, maybe I can't trust my Bible. We don't want to leave you in that place. We want you to know everything, everything about the Word of God. So... Today I want to take you to Matthew 18, which is another difficult passage. Matthew 18. When I say Matthew 18, most mature Christians immediately are thinking, church discipline. We are not kicking anyone out of the church this morning. It's not, yeah, it's not you. (laughs) Because you would know, right? Because step one and step two, right? We seem to know what the steps are of Matthew 18, of church discipline. Um, Really, 50 years ago, evangelical church didn't practice this this, uh, principle, this process. And some would say that it was 
John MacArthur's teaching that brought this back into the evangelical landscape. He said, from the get-go, we're going to practice church discipline. And his elders said, if you do that, we're going to lose our church. And 45 years later, Grace Community Church is doing just fine. And he said, it's not my church, it's the Lord's church, and if he says to practice this, then we're going to practice it, but let's practice it correctly. And early on in his ministry, he had a very prominent elder in his church, and he's told this story many times. Uh, His daughter wanted to get married, but she wanted to marry uh, an unbeliever. And he said, not in the church. It's not going to happen. It's not good for her. It's not good for him. It's not good for the church. And they said, well, you can't tell this elder that. He's been here a lot longer than you have, and it's not me, it's not my church, it's the Lord's church. And wouldn't be loving to this family, wouldn't be loving to this young woman and this young man. And so they said, okay, we understand you have a strong conviction in this area. So we'll have one of the other pastors do the ceremony. And he said, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do this. And he said, in fact, we're, gonna, we're going to follow the steps of church discipline here. And uh, I guess about 400 people left with that elder and their family. And within a year, 400 new people had come. And the next year, 800 new people had come. And, and the, the rest is history. Don't know what ended up happening to, to the other family. You know, you pray and hope that everything turned out well. But Matthew 18. Now in the church... People have a wrong view. They've gone all the way to the other extreme, and they think of Matthew 18 as kicking people out of the church. Excommunication. And they've lost the whole context of where we even get the teaching from. So today I want to give you the context. We're going to look at the what, the why, and the how of church discipline. It's a two-part series. We can't cover it all today. I'm going to say it's really ten steps, not three. And in fact, the ten steps are just my way of letting you know that there's more here than meets the eye. We need discipline. What's, what word is in the word discipline? Disciple. This is about discipleship. This is God's plan for discipling His church. This is the one and others, practicing the one and others, that we would love one another enough to not allow each other to continue in habitual sin, flagrant sin. But we're posed with this perplexing dilemma. And I think this is why most people are afraid to exercise church discipline, to lovingly confront one another. Because when we read the New Testament, Jesus saved his most scathing rebuke for those who looked like they were exercising church discipline. If Jesus aimed his most scathing rebukes at the Pharisees for their legalistic, judgmental, hypocritical behavior, then why would he instruct the church to discipline members when they sin to the point that the church may have to shun an unrepentant sinner? Ask them to leave the assembly. How can Jesus expect sinners to confront sinners about sin? 
And doesn't this plan run the risk of unintentionally creating more Pharisees in the church? We don't want people running around saying, I have the spiritual gift of Matthew 18. It's not one of the spiritual gifts. Now, knowing people the way we know them, yes, it does run the risk of people going around saying, it is my job to clean all the sin out of the church. That was the problem of the Pharisees. See, their answer to this dilemma is, you are absolutely right. That's why there must be a group of people who don't sin. We can tell people they're in sin because we are no longer in sin. We keep the law. We keep it fastidiously. Therefore, we have the platform. We have the leverage. We have the right to purify the assembly. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. Sinners can and should lovingly, humbly confront other sinners when they are trapped or stuck in habitual sin. Because we all have blind spots. We've been talking about this for a year now. We all have blind spots. We need somebody to come to us. We need more than one person sometimes to come to us. And we get our hearts so hardened that sometimes we even need the whole assembly to say we love you, but we can't allow you to continue in the sin. So it can be done, it should be done, it's commanded, but there's a way in which we should do it and an attitude with which we should do this. Church discipline is not, let's, let's get this out of the way. What is it not? It is not about kicking sinners out of the church. It is not about kicking sinners out of the church. If that were the goal, church would be empty. Amen. You'd get everyone out and then you'd need to kick yourself out, right? So it's not about kicking sinners out of the church, though Jesus wants to purify his bride. We cannot... A little leaven ruins a whole lump, right? We can't just turn a blind eye to sin. Praise God He didn't turn a blind eye to sin. He loved us enough to do something about it. Look at how Jesus confronts people in their sin in the Bible. It's, it's where people are teachable and humble. It's so loving and it's so... You know, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes? Because they know that they're sick and they need a physician. Where does he have to confront with a more fierce, a more strong, a more uh, scathing rebuke sometimes? It's those who think they don't need to repent. Those who don't think they're sick. And yet he confronts both. He confronts both. Church discipline is not about forcing people to agree with your judgments. If you go through the three steps, that is not license to say, well, I did everything that I was supposed to do according to the Bible. I went to them. They didn't listen. I took two people. They didn't listen. And I tell it to the church now. What if they're not really in sin? What if you have a strong conviction about something, but it's not a biblical commandment? What if you just don't like the person very much? You can't say, well, I did Matthew 18 on them, and please don't use it as a verb. 
I lovingly approached my brother and we had a conversation about some things I was concerned about. Church discipline is not an expectation for the elder board to police the church. There are five elders in this church. We're we're in the process of getting more. We could not possibly police seven to eight hundred people. That is the Holy Spirit's job. He came to convict the world of sin and righteousness. Sometimes people say the elders aren't being aggressive enough in disciplining people. Jennifer and I attended Grace Community Church for about two years, and in that time we saw one person make it all the way to the last step. And the way they handled it was was beautiful, it was righteous, it was humble. The person was in adultery. And they said, the person's name, pursue this person. You see him at the market, pursue them. Are you ready to come back to the church? Are you ready to repent? We're ready to receive you in open arms. Like the father and the prodigal son, we will, we will race down the road to meet you. That was the instructions. But they can't stay in a church in, in adultery, right? You, you can't allow that to go on. It would taint the church. It would give the bride of Christ a black eye. But wor- even worse... How is it going to help this fellow and and his marriage? So what is church discipline? Church discipline is commanded by the Lord Jesus, who is the head of the church, for the purpose of restoring a believer who is in habitual sin or a believer that has committed an obvious sin but hasn't repented from it back to a place of fellowship within the body of Christ. So we're looking for some kind of pattern of unrepentant sin or somebody who committed an obvious, egregious act of sin and they're completely unremorseful, unsorrowful, unrepentant about it. Church discipline, when done correctly, involves humility, love, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. Humility, love, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. All these things are in play. It is intended to sanctify the church through practicing the one another's. This is how we disciple one another. It's not just, uh, oh boy, that guy is in sin and we need to tell the whole church and get that guy out of here. At some point, we all need somebody to come alongside us and point out, our blind spots, those patterns that we don't see. During the 30-day review process, when I was up for nomination for this position, somebody lovingly came to me and said, you know, you do this thing where we're talking and I'm talking to you and you just drift off. You nailed me. Yeah, you got me. That's That's... That's me. I've known about it. I'm working on it. Obviously, I have more work to do on it. Please forgive me. Well, what are you thinking about? Like the ten other things I have to do after this conversation. And I'm trying to multitask. See if I can solve a few problems in the the back of the computer here. But you can't do that, right? You've got to be like this person is important. 
I love you. I respect you. I need to, to hear from you. So that's the way to tell someone. And you know, partway through the conversation, I'm like, I'm being Matthew 18, technically. <laughs> but I don't mind. This is good. You know, but if somebody came in with five people saying, we're here for an intervention... You know, you want to run. You want to hit the door. This isn't good. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't even want this job then, you know. So it was handled correctly, the way that the Bible lays that out. And if, if I didn't receive it, then they would need to come back with a few more people who have witnessed and experienced the same thing. Not a couple of people who are like, yeah, I mean, if he does that, that's totally wrong. I'll go in with you. You know, that's not, you can't go out looking for people to be on your side. Witnesses, two or three witnesses. Sometimes there aren't witnesses, and you might need to come back with a neutral arbitrator. A neutral. That would be like a, a good time to call the elder and bring in the elder. So most people think there are three steps, and I want to get us out of that three-step mentality. This is, this is difficult stuff. We're talking about people's hearts here. Don't narrow heart work down to a three-step plan. There used to be a guy on the talk radio, and he called it the three-step plan, and I think it was to make millions of dollars. And I'm like, there's no three steps to making millions. And he's like, you know, send in 50 bucks, and I'll tell you the three-step plan. <laughs> like step one, sucker a bunch of people. Step two, tell them where to mail the check. Step three, cash the check. Okay, I, I get it. This... We cannot boil down heart work to, to, to three steps. So I'm going to say there's ten steps. There's nothing biblical about the number ten here. It's just a way to slow us down and think more deeply about how to do this. Never boil Christianity down to programs, protocols, and procedures. People are important to God. People. And God always cares about the heart above all else. You could... Go through the steps the right way and totally do it with the wrong heart attitude and God will not be pleased. Well, I did the three steps. I'm absolved of all criticism. Why do you think your brother is in sin? These are questions you need to ask of your own heart. Are you sure they're in sin? Or is it maybe just your feelings got hurt? Maybe it's your own personal conviction, but it's not a biblical black and white sin area. Why do you care? Do you care because you want to be right? Or do you care about this person? Do you care about their soul? Do you care about honoring the Lord Jesus? What are your intentions? What are your expectations? What about your sin? Have you dealt with your own sin first? Have you gotten the log out of your eye before you go to your brother to get the speck out? Will you let others confront you about your sin? Or are you the only one who gets to confront others, but you won't allow others to confront you? Why are you so eager to confront your brother? Are you one of these people who love to confront people? It's like what you live for. It's your passion. It's your spiritual gift. Or are you on the other side of the pendulum? Why are you so afraid to confront your brother? Oh, I could never do that. I could never confront him, but you can sit at home and call all your friends and talk about how horrible... It is. That's not good. That's gossip. Well, I could never do that. That's not loving. 
That's not loving. I could never confront them. It's not loving to help your brother see their own sin and help them get out of that, that pattern of sin. So this is difficult stuff we're talking about. I realize that nobody's perfect at this. It is hard work. But we're trying to give us some principles from the Bible for doing this because we are commanded to do this. So first and foremost, you need to understand Matthew 18 in context. Context. We had a running joke. I used to teach the biblical Greek class at Heritage Joke School. And if you ever drifted off, which is very easy to do in a Greek class, and you're in junior high, and you get called on, you can always say context. And I would probably go, well, yeah, okay, yeah, context, yeah, yeah, not what I was looking for, but... Just like in Sunday school, when you drift off and you get called on, what do you say? Jesus. Because no one's ever going to say, no. (laughs) Wrong. You know, always going to say, yeah, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the answer to everything I was looking for. Another answer this time. So context. Context is so important. I I doubt there's more than five people in this room that know what the context is to Matthew 18 because we just rip it right out and teach it as a three-step kind of plan. Let me give you the context this morning. I think you're gonna it's gonna be a real eye-opener. You know, wow, okay, this is making sense now. Now we understand. Why would Jesus teach us? Where was he? What was the situation? Here's the situation. Matthew 18:1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of God? Okay, they're at it again. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who gets to sit on the left and the right? You know Peter's involved here. He's got to be. In fact, many commentators believe they may have been at Peter's house where they often gathered. Peter's house. And Jesus grabs a child grabs a child. And it may, some commentators believe, may have been Peter's child. So we've got this context of immense pride. I mean, what is the answer to who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus. I mean, why are you even asking this question? So the context is pride. And we need to just say from the outset that church discipline cannot be practiced where pride flourishes. In fact, it's, the, it's part of the antidote to pride, why we practice church discipline. If your heart is filled with pride, you cannot confront another brother correctly. And if your heart's filled with pride, you cannot be confronted. You will not allow it. You will not listen. You will plug your ears, harden your heart, and get angry. Even if three or four people come who you know love you, and you know have no agenda against you, if your heart's filled with pride, you will not listen. You will think some great conspiracy is going on. If we are selfishly striving to be greatest in the kingdom, then everyone around us becomes an adversary, an obstacle, or some kind of opportunity for us to prove that we indeed are the greatest in the kingdom. Right? This is, this is the way we're born. This is 
it shows up in the way we play sports and the way we even do family game night. You know, everybody's an obstacle to my greatness. I will dominate. I will beat a three-year-old at sorry. There will be tears. In a prideful context, the only reason you would confront... If your heart's filled with pride in that context, the only reason you would confront your brother is either to make yourself feel more powerful or more holy. More powerful or more holy. Because when you can go around and you can say, here's where you are, you're sinning, here's where I'm at. For, for prideful people, this is a safe place to be. I'm always a little bit higher than everybody else. I'm always a little bit higher than everyone else. I'm a little, a little holier. I know we're all sinners, but... Right? That's the disclaimer. Well, of course we all sin. Okay, well, name five of yours that you committed in the last week. Ah, uh, I'm sure there was, you know. Name them. Write them out. Tell me what they are. Can't do it. Don't go and do church discipline if you haven't practiced confessing your own sin. Or, likewise, this kind of pride may also keep us from confronting a brother. So the ugly side of the pride coin is going around confronting everyone. The other side, which is less ugly to us but no less ugly to God, is I'm not going to confront anyone because then everyone will like me. Everyone will like me. You know, I won't point out your sin. You don't point out mine. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. Yes, it can be difficult to confront one another in sin or to be confronted, but the, the answer isn't to not confront anyone. Maybe we need a different word than confront because that word has so much baggage attached to it. It's just going to your brother, your fellow sinner, your fellow sinner saved by grace, your fellow child of God, your co-heir in Christ and saying, hey, let's talk. I think I see something here and, and I don't want it to get the best of you. That's what was done for me. The thing was, it was something I knew I struggled with. I just thought I had nailed it down. No, it's back. So, okay, we got to work on that some more. When it comes to church discipline, think ten steps, not three. Long before you even think about confronting a brother about his sin, you must first search your own heart and deal with your own sins and motives. There's nothing magical about these ten steps. They're just designed to get our hearts in the right place so we can practice church discipline correctly for the glory of God and for our own good. Don't think of discipline as I'm disciplining my children. God disciplines His children. This is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for... Discipline is one of the words. Discipline, teaching, correction. We need discipline. It's like you're somebody's coach in that moment. You're their coach. You know? Your form is off. Get back to the basics. Get back to the fundamentals. And down the road, somebody else is going to have to come to you and say, hey, your, your, your form is off. I see patterns of sin creeping up. We've got to nip this in the bud. Let's do it. Let's figure this out together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's 
hey, I, I struggle with that too. Here's what I do about it. Oh, that's the best if you can go to someone and say, the only reason I see this is in you is because it's me. Let's struggle with this together. So step one is to practice radical humility. Pride is so insidious, it's so devastating to the church that we're going to have to practice radical humility. The world's not going to help us with this. Not this world we live in, no. Pride and exalting oneself. Well, I, I'm going to say it's going to kill me because I'm a Dodger fan. But my, my sister and brother-in-law, they live in the Bay Area. They've become Giants fans. I don't know how it happened. They've been brainwashed. And they were visiting for the installation, right, uh, party. And it was Saturday night, and they're like, we're going to miss the giant game. I don't have cable. No cable, no satellite. I'm like, well, I could take you down to the Bear Valley Country Club. They got the big TVs, right? It means I have to sit in a bar the night before I get installed at senior pastor of a Baptist church. But <laughs> we'll go watch a baseball game, okay? And I'm watching this team, and I'm, like, jealous because you know what? They're a team. They really are. I can see a team when I see one. The Dodgers are not a team. They're a bunch of individuals. You know, you can see it. There's no superstars on that team. They play like a team. They don't care who gets the glory as long as they get the win. Uh, that basketball team's like that, the one that won. Who, who won? The Spurs. You know, Tim Duncan's, I guess, the superstar, but he doesn't really act like some kind of superstar. They pass the ball, and whoever's open shoots, and they win. And you're like, why don't more people play like that? They win the ring. Well, that tells me that that's not what the world wants. That's not what sells, sells uh, products. So the humble people keep winning the championships, but the world wants superstars. They want celebrity. They want That's what sells the tickets and fills the stadiums. The, the Giants have a, a team captain. It's their, their catcher. His name's Buster Posey. He's like the neatest, like, kid from the neighborhood, you'd be like, now there's an all-American kid. What a nice guy. He's quiet, thoughtful leadership. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm jealous of the Giants. This is sad. Even when we see humility, though, it's not something that people are wanting to chase after. So the world's not going to help us with this. We're going to need the Holy Spirit to help us with this. Even when I go and talk to other pastors, they say, how's it going up at, at the church? Yeah. So what's your attendance like? First question, what's your attendance like? You know, that's, those are pastors, good godly men. They ought to know better. They always want to know what, what, what's your attendance like. How's giving? Second question. Nickels and noses. You know, they're, how's your church's holiness? How, how's their humility? Do they practice the one in others? Are they hospitable? Is there love there? That's like down on the list and it should be top on the list. Matthew 18.2 And he called a child to himself a pideon, a two-year-old or younger, a two-year-old or infant. It's a very young child. Called him 
it's either he said to the two-year-old, you know, come over here, or he called for someone to bring, you know, bring the baby over to me and set him before him. Just picture that, this little baby on Jesus' knee. That's just a beautiful scene right there. And it said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You won't even get in, let alone who's the greatest. And the illustration is so obvious and so vibrant and so on the money. You know, they're like, well, how could that child be the greatest? He's not done anything. He hasn't accomplished anything. What if he was like in a soiled diaper? That'd be even better, right? And if it was Peter who asked the question and he grabbed Peter's child, how rich would that be? Peter, unless you're like this crying, soiled, helpless, needy, bringing nothing to the table child, you won't even enter the kingdom. No place in the kingdom for for pride. How can you be prideful in the presence of the Almighty? Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So now the child is no longer the actual child. The child now is a humble believer, a child of God. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. If you can receive a a child, a new believer with all their baggage and remember, boy, that was me. I mean, it still is me in a lot of ways, but, you know, as a new believer, I was a wreck. People were patient with me and loving with me and didn't expect my sanctification to happen overnight. You receive one such child in Jesus' name, you're receiving Jesus. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is not talking about child abuse. This is not talking about molesting children. We've used this passage before to say this is what's going to happen to pedophiles and child molesters. No, I, I, I think if they don't repent, there will be even worse than this waiting for them. This is, look... If in your pride you cause a little child, a new believer, to stumble because of your pride. Pride is the context. You don't have patience with them. Love is patient. Love is kind. You don't have patience with people. A new believer or maybe an unbeliever comes in the doors and we're like, you know, get out of here with your stinky sin. How are they ever going to come to Christ now if that's their first impression? If this is what Christians are like? doesn't mean let them in here and say, well, go ahead and sin. It's come on in. We're all sinners in search of God's grace. Let us come alongside you and help you grow in the Lord. Now, if they don't want to grow, then that's a different story. Pride is so harmful to the church. It elevates opinion to fact. Our opinions now become fact. It elevates preference to law. These things that are our preferences suddenly become God's law, and now we're holding everyone accountable to our preferences. It elevates accomplishment to proof of holiness or worthiness. 
Pride blinds us to our own sins, our own mistakes, our own fallibility. Each person, each believer, each little child is precious to God. Look at the people around you. Jesus spilled his blood for these people. Don't you dare, don't you dare mess with a child of God. He's jealous of his children. Loving a believer equals loving Jesus. How do I love Jesus? Love believers. First John, if you say you love Jesus, but you hate your brother, you're a liar. You're a liar. You don't love Jesus if you hate your brother. If you hate your brother, don't come and bring your offering at the altar. Go home and reconcile. Step two, practice radical personal holiness. In other words, deal with the log in your eye before you deal with the speck in your brother's eye. Yes, we need one another to point out sin in our life, but if we busy ourselves with dealing with our own sin, church discipline isn't as necessary. And when it is necessary, it will go a lot more smoothly if the person knows you are a humble person, a loving person, a person who is desperately aware of your own fallenness. If you lead by example and tell people, here's where I sin, here's where I fall short of the mark, here's where I need God's grace, how much easier will it be for them to accept what you have to say to them? Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. The world, of course, is going to tempt us. But it should not be so inside the church. So certainly any habitual, presumptuous sin would be a stumbling block inside the church. Somebody flaunting their adultery or flaunting their hatred or but the one sin that is directly in view in this context is the sin of pride a prideful person a prideful person everybody has pride we understand that but we're talking about somebody who does not acknowledge their pride at all a prideful person is such a stumbling block in the church such a stumbling block and if they're in any kind of leadership it's even worse Pharisees produce other Pharisees. We're supposed to be a gospel-centered church. We're supposed to be on our knees, crying out for mercy from God, realizing our fallenness and our need for His love and grace. And how can a mature believer walk around and say, well, yeah, I don't need that anymore. It is such a stumbling block. You're going to create other prideful people in the church. You're going to create a culture where people don't want to be honest about their sins. It's what the Pharisees did. It's what the religious leaders did in their day. They, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you cross the ocean to make a convert, and when you do, you make them twice a son as hell as yourself. So we must practice radical holiness. If your hand or your foot... Notice it's not if your brother's hand. It's if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. 
Obviously, it's hyperbole. He's exaggeration, you know. This is how serious the sin of pride is. You've got to cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Just like in Matthew 5 where we read, if we would have kept reading, it said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even so much as look at a woman with lust in your Heart, you've already committed adultery, so pluck out your eye and throw it away from yourself. It is that serious. Biblical counselors call this radical amputation. Radical amputation. Don't deal lazily with your sin, especially the sin of pride. It is disastrous, brothers and sisters, just disastrous. It's a cancer. It'll spread. You cut it out and you cut out all the cells around it and then you blast it with radiation and chemo and you make sure it is gone. Now, can you ever completely get rid of your pride this side of heaven? No. We understand that. Right? I finally got rid of my pride. There it is. Oop, there it is, right? <laughs> it's back. I'm the most humble man. <laughs> it just doesn't work. I am pride-free. Been pride-free for 30 days. Step three, practice radical love. By the way, folks, you cannot practice love with pride in the way. What is pride? It's self-love. If, if you're practicing self-love, you've got no love to practice You've got no love to give other people if you're busy loving self. Practice radical love. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I'm not going to break down that verse and what that means, but just know that's how important these believers are to God. We shouldn't be despising anyone who professes the name of Christ. And in, frankly, Jesus said to love your enemies, too. If you have bitterness in your heart towards someone in the church and you think you need to confront them, you need to confront your bitterness first. If you can't love someone, your attitude when somebody is in sin, I know initially when somebody sins against us, what is our first response? Ouch! That is ugly. I am hurt. My life has been inconvenienced. And if the sin is radical, it could be worse than an inconvenience. I understand that. I understand that. There could be an abuse involved. But you need to take that to the cross and you need to say, I love this person. They're in sin against a holy God. That is not a good place for anybody to be. You ought to care more about the person's sin and how it is affecting their relationship with God than how it's inconveniencing your personal life. I know that's hard, especially in the context of the home where we're all stuck together for better or for worse, right? But you need to care more about that person's soul than your own comfort. And what will happen is that bitterness will melt and it'll turn to compassion. And then you'll say, man, that's me. 
I'm a sinner too. Is that what my sin looks like? Oh, that's ugly. Yes, that's what your sin looks like. And if it looks that ugly to you and me who are sinful people, imagine what it looks like to a holy God. If we're that offended, how much more is God offended with our sin? So have compassion and love for those who are stuck in sin. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does not does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? That is radical love. Most people would say, oh, I'm good enough with the ninety-nine. That's going to be a lot of work going after that one. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of uncomfortable meetings, phone calls. Whew, no, no thanks. Wait, we're the one that the good shepherd went after. Aren't you glad he went after you? Amen. Amen. Remember where else we hear the story? It's right before the prodigal son, the woman who loses the coin, and then she finds it and she's excited. And the shepherd who loses the one sheep and he finds it, and he says, there's a party in heaven over the one sinner that repents. Over the 99 who don't need repentance. 99 righteous, right? He's being sarcastic there. Sanctified sarcasm. The 99 who don't need to repent. The 99 righteous. There is no 99 righteous that don't need to repent. We're all the lost sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53. There is none righteous, no, not one. None seeks after God, Romans 3. So you're going to abandon the one in sin? Come on. No, we need to love one another and pursue one another. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. See, pride doesn't seek out lost sheep. Humility recognizes that we are all lost sheep and love compels us to go after the lost sheep. Each believer is precious to God. Love pursues. And sometimes I realize the lost sheep doesn't want to come home with you. That happens sometimes. That you keep pursuing, keep pursuing, keep pursuing. Again, realizing that someday that might be you. And I hope the church will come after me. In love. And sometimes, listen to this, sometimes you think there's the lost sheep. There's the lost sheep. I'm going to go get them. Come on, people, let's go get them. And the people are like, you're the lost sheep. No, 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 you're the lost sheep. You got it all wrong there, brother. You go to get two or three witnesses and they go, no, you're it. And you get rid of those and get two or three more and everyone's, man, you're the lost sheep. That happens. Finally then, humility, personal holiness, and love, they're inseparable from church discipline. Don't even get to the other steps until you really dwell on humility, personal holiness, and love. Galatians 5.25, this is after the fruits of the Spirit, right? The fruits of the Spirit are... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, 
faithfulness, self-control. That's the kind of person I'd want to confront me. Patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not boastful. It is not puffed up. It does not seek its own. It keeps no records of wrong. That's the kind of person I want coming after me when I sin. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in such trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself. Check your own heart first so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. The royal law, the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So let's dwell on this this week before you run out and confront somebody. Let's radically confront our own pride, confront our own sin, confront our own lack of, of love. And then we'll meet back together next week and, and then our hearts will be ready to know, well, how do you confront a brother? What, what does it look like? And then what do you do after the confrontation? So let's pray. Father, God, we have no business being prideful in your presence and yet we are. I can only imagine how distasteful, disgusting that is to a holy and righteous God. And yet I know you love us because you died for us. And you've told us in your word you love us. Thank you, Lord, that the kindness of the Lord brings us to repentance. And yet sometimes, Lord, you need to be more direct. And so thank you for your discipline, your loving discipline. As a father, you love your children so much that you would discipline us. Lord, may we understand our need for discipline, that it's a good thing. It's good for our souls. It's good for our hearts. You want your church to be holy and a place filled with humility and love where we're able to come alongside one another and help each other with our sins. That we can be transparent and openly confess our sins because the God who knows our hearts better than we do has chosen not to abandon us, but to die for us and love us so that we too can be open about our sin to one another, to allow others to speak truth into our life, knowing there will be a day where we will need to speak truth into theirs. And that by our efforts to bring glory to you, God, we will find our greatest good and satisfaction. Make this just such a place. In Jesus' name, amen.